great to have you with us. We've been working through the book of 2 Corinthians for uh, a few weeks now. Uh, and let me pray as we come to God's word. You may want to have that there as well. Father, we want to thank you that you do speak to us in words we can understand and learn about you. Uh, we pray, please, as uh, we think, think through relationships, uh, particularly relationships in your church. You might also be wise Help us understand uh, what relationships we should be cherishing and building and what ones uh, we might be, uh, be best off running away from. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, relationships can be tricky things, can't they? Uh, I, I'm sure that's uh, true and you know that's true. Uh, whether it's a romantic relationship, they're often you know, up and down. In fact, the emotional highs and downs in those relationships can be very, very difficult. Uh, tricky business relationships, friendships can be tricky. Neighbourly relationships, well, depends. Do you get on with your neighbour? Uh, ever had a fight over a tree branch or drop leaves or dog poo or anything like that? Um, even church relationships uh, can be challenging and tricky uh, at times, which uh, maybe ought to surprise us because uh, church is meant to be loving, isn't it? And we're God's people and we're always nice and we always care for each other and we always do the right thing, don't we? So why would there ever be any problems in a church? Oh, uh, well, you know... That's not always the case. Uh, and that's partly just because relationships take time, they take effort. Uh, and sometimes things are said, maybe innocently, maybe deliberately, which cause hurt and pain. There's misunderstandings. There's all kinds of things that go up. We had a wedding here yesterday, which was fantastic. And uh, uh, I think a lot of people aren't here this morning because uh, the party that went late into the night, uh, you know, I was, I went home early enough. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it was a great, a great joy to see Jared and Kirsten get married. And at eight o'clock today, we had a couple visiting us from two other churches who uh, met uh, through their uni group, and they want to get married here, and so they wanted to come and check us out, and that was very exciting. Uh, but you know, uh, as joyful as those starts are, they're going to face ups and downs. Uh, now, uh, the passage today in two Corinthians chapter six is all about relationships. Uh, and this passage has been used to speak into a great many relationships over the years, and perhaps you've used it or heard it used, uh, uh, spoken to you or against you maybe uh, in terms of marriage and mixed marriages between Christian and not Christian. Maybe you've heard it used in terms of uh, business relationships or denominational relationships, all kinds of things. But the passage really isn't about those relationships. It, I think it says something about them, and we'll touch on that later. But it's about one special relationship that he's talking about, the relationship of Paul himself with the church in Corinth. And the point he makes today is a very, very simple one in 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, he wants reconciliation. He wants reconciliation with the Christians in this place called Corinth in modern-day Greece. It's there in chapter 6 and verse 13. He says, "'Open wide your hearts.'" Also, just like we've opened our hearts to you, uh, you see it again in chapter 7 and verse 2. He says, make room for us in your hearts. There you go. Now, the great apostle Paul is writing to a church that he had founded and he's appealing to them to rethink their current opinion of him uh, and to begin to understand what drives him, his motivation, his love, uh, what he's on about, so that they might... Uh, re-engage with him so they might boast in him in fact uh, and boast in his style of Christian work 
uh, that they make room for him in their hearts. In fact, that's what the whole letter of 2 Corinthians is about. And so come back to chapter 5 for a second and uh, see verse 12. Uh, chapter 5, uh, full of uh, qu- quotable quotes has been used and then the other verses are the famous one. But I think chapter 5 and verse 12 really unlocks the whole letter of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5 and verse 12, uh, which says, We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. That is, the Corinthians, the Corinthian church who he founded, are drifting away from the Apostle Paul. They're they're heading off into other lands. Why are they drifting? Well, because of the influence of certain spiritual gurus who've turned up in town with what looks like a much better brand of Christianity. In fact, they call themselves the super apostles. Uh, and we get to hear much more descriptions of them later on in the letter. And these super apostles are promising us a super Christianity, a sexier, flashier, safer, easier, more spiritual, more enjoyable sort of Christianity. And the drift away from Paul and towards these guys uh, was seen in a whole bunch of different ways. The nature of the drift had to do with the style of Christian work they preferred. They didn't seem to like the straight-talking, persuasive you know, declaration of the truth from Paul. They wanted something altogether more interesting and nuanced and subtle. Uh, the nature of the drift had to do with the shape of Christian ministry that Paul uh, engaged in. They didn't seem to like the focus he had on sacrificial service of the Lord uh, or selfless love and service towards others. They wanted to hear something much more comfortable, much more me-centred. Um, and the drift also had something to do with the substance of Christian work. They just didn't like the message that Paul was teaching. They preferred something more accommodating, more popular, more acceptable socially. And you might say, well, why do I bother getting up so early this morning to come to Barney's to hear about a classic case of church politics. Isn't that what it is? I mean, if I just wanted to hear about one Christian leader slagging off another, I just would have had to pick up the Southern Cross and take it home and uh, sit in a bath and with a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and uh, I could have read the letter section in the Southern Cross. That's always a fun read. Uh, But this is no ordinary dispute. Don't miss Paul's point. For whether we adopt the style and shape and substance of Paul's ministry actually really matters. It matters because it has a profound impact on how you stand with God. Why is that? Well, because of what we saw last week in chapter 5 and verse 20, where he says, we, that is Paul and his uh, band uh, and, and the other apostles as well who were called by Jesus, he says, we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. So the logic, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out the logic. It's not that hard to understand. If a church drifts from Paul's message, we're in fact shifting from God himself, not because Paul is God, but because he is God's ambassador. He speaks for God. You know what an ambassador is? Uh, it's a spokesperson, isn't it? Uh, and uh, we're not just talking about a celebrity advocate for a brand of shaving cream or, you know, for Diet Cola or something. I mean, we call them ambassadors, but, but a real ambassador, 
someone who's a spokesperson for a country from which they're sent. In fact, so close is the connection between the ambassador and the country they represent that that if you do anything to the ambassador, uh, you're actually declaring war on the country. All right? Now, I know that because I have, you know, plumbed the literary depths and watched such things as Lethal Weapon and 24 and Madam Secretary or Designated Survivor. Uh, you see it on all those kind of things. There you go, intellectual pursuits. But you attack the embassy, uh, you're attacking the country. You attack the ambassador who runs the embassy, you're attacking the country. You know, you think about the conflicts we've had in the Middle East over the last 30 years or so. When we hear from the ambassador of Iran or the ambassador of Syria when they're being grilled in the media or answering questions or making a statement, we assume that their line is the line of the government or the state which they represent. In fact, that's the point of an ambassador. They speak for the country. They represent our ambassadors overseas speak for us. They, they tow our line. Uh, and that's Paul's point here. For he has been appointed by God. He has a message from God. Be reconciled to God. Indeed, that's his job. He's in the ministry of reconciliation. He is God's ambassador. And therefore, if any man or woman or any church is drifting from the Apostle Paul, it's not just a matter of church politics or of personal preferences and styles, he says you're actually really drifting from God himself. At the Bible college, I attended um, more college, great college. Uh, I, I was taught by someone who was once a red-hot evangelical reformed guy, went to a great church uh, himself as an excellent preacher, very interesting. Uh, but even just the four years I was there, the, the whole class watched as... Uh, he started changing in a whole bunch of ways. He started saying things like, well, just because it's in the Bible, that doesn't really make it so, does it? And he thought, oh, is he playing devil's advocate to get class thinking? I don't know. But then he started questioning things like the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. Well, is it really enough? Um, yeah, he started questioning the need to repent of your sins. Actually, does God really call us to change? Isn't grace just grace, and so it doesn't really matter what you do from here on. Um, he started saying that philosophy uh, probably had more insights than the Bible, and he really was down on Paul. He said, Paul's a bit hard line, isn't he? Uh, and, you know, when he wrote stuff, he, re- you know, he wasn't, he's, you know, he's old-fashioned, and he's a long time, he hadn't considered all the implications and all the cases and all the, the things we now know. Uh, you know, and... Uh, that man may well still call himself a Christian, but I can tell you he doesn't have Christ. Uh, uh, I, I was speaking to someone at 8 o'clock who knows, who, who knew who I was talking about, and said, ah, oh, yes, I, I met him the other day because uh, he's an old friend of a friend, and uh, his whole Bible study, go to Mardi Gras together uh, and uh, campaign there, uh, and just like, what's going on? What do you say to a person like that? What do you say to the person who says, I've moved on from the Bible? I've moved on from the Apostle Paul. What do you say? I think you need to say you've got to be reconciled to God himself. Because if there's any space between yourself and the Apostle Paul in your thinking and in your practice, then there's a space between you and God. 
What do you say to the denomination that publishes an article explaining this? And I quote, uh, Paul's letter of 1 Timothy does rule out what we are currently doing. This has to be conceded. But the question is how much weight should be put on these passages shaping the order of our church in our own day? And the answer they give is apparently none. Who cares what he says? What do you say to them? If Paul is God's ambassador carrying the very message of God, if there's any space between Paul's theology and yours or between God's, Paul's practice and mine, then, then I need to be reconciled to God. Paul is God's envoy. He's the ambassador. He speaks the very words of God. And so as we get into chapter 6 today, Paul, in a sense, begins his closing appeal. Uh, and there's two very simple points that he makes. First one is, check your assessment. Right? Think hard who's speaking the truth here, me or them. And the second thing he says is change your allegiance. Check your assessment, change your allegiance. So first thing, check your assessment. He says, check your assessment of my credentials. See whether I stack up, whether I'm consistent with what I'm saying. See if my credentials are authentic. And you can see that's exactly what he wants us to do, to check him out and make sure he's authentic from, from say, verse uh, verse 3. Uh, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry might not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. That's what it's about. It's how he commends himself to their conscience that I am authentic. And he lists a whole range of experience and practice that authenticates his God-given work. They commend him to us. And the Corinthians ought to be able to run down the list that he gives and 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 just tick them off as a game. Yeah, you tick tick. Yes, that's right. That one makes sense. Yes, I see. That's the case. And I reckon uh, we're not going to go through all of them as a great long list, but you could break it up into pretty much four groups. There's four groups of factors in the list. Four sorts of credentials that Paul gives, and I reckon all of them flow from. Uh, as inevitable consequences of being God's ambassador, going with God's message of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. And so as we go through this list and these four factors, you might want to ask yourself, well, does does Paul really qualify on all these accounts? But it might be worth asking as well, is that how I look at the world and decide on whether I think my church leaders or my Bible study leaders have really got the goods? Do they stack up to these qualifications? And if you're really brave, you may want to do some self-analysis of your own personal ministry to others. Does it stack up? Would someone be able to see that your credentials are valid? That someone someone ought to be able to see and tell if you are God's ambassadors from, from these very things? Okay, so there's four groups. Uh, that we're going to be looking at. So the first set of credentials, and I don't know if this one surprises you. Paul says his ministry is characterised by hardship and suffering. It's a funny place to start, isn't it? Uh, now maybe that seems a bit strange that, that they are the credentials. He said in verse 4 and 5, he says, We commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, Hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and rights. Not causing him, not doing it, but he's on the receiving end. In hard work, sleepless nights and in hunger. How do you tell 
I am God's ambassador because I put up with all that. Is that the first thing you'd think of as the authenticating mark of a genuine God-given ministry, suffering and hardship? But you see, it authenticates Paul as God's ambassador because the message that he has and that he goes with is both confronting and it's urgent. It's urgent like we saw last week because today is the day of God's favour. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, whether you're going to meet your maker, you don't know if Jesus is coming back or where you're going to stand and make the decision now. It's urgent uh, and that's always going to land you in hot water and difficult because you're saying now, 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 now. Um, but the message is very confronting as well. It may be glorious. It may be the best news in the world, which it is. It's a glorious treasure we've seen, but it's totally confronting. Now, we saw the heart of the message last week in chapter 5, verse 21. Remember that very famous verse. God made him who had no sin, that, that's Jesus, Jesus who's sinless. God made Jesus who was sinless to be a sin offering. That is, that he sent his son to bear uh, his wrath at our sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great, great news. And, and that's the beating heart of Christianity. It's, it's not about doing good things to reach God, uh, as if Christianity is about earning enough frequent flyer points to get to heaven or you know, uh, earning brownie points to get the badge uh, or climbing a ladder of good works to reach our way up to God. And it's not about bowing and scraping and doing religious deeds that make you somehow acceptable to God. The beating heart of Christianity is about God making his son bear the punishment for our sin so that we can become um, right with God, pure and perfect. The great exchange, his innocence for our unrighteousness. And that's glorious news, isn't it? It liberates us, it brings joy, it brings life if we accept it. But... To accept that, you've got to accept all the premises that it's based on, all the things that are foundational to that message. You've got to accept the premise that, by nature, we're all in trouble with God. Right? You've got to accept that. You need to accept the premise that we'll all die in our sins if they're not forgiven. You've got to accept the premise that we cannot make it on our own. We're actually helpless to do, powerless to do anything about it. Uh, we're helpless and hopeless without God intervening, without God doing it all, in fact. That, now, that's confronting, isn't it? It's confronting, and it's why uh, Christian leaders down through the centuries continued added to the gospel because they can't, keep, can't cope with that. We're helpless. We've got to add something to it. Um, and it's really confronting for the world. And they cannot cope with it. And I think that's a large part of why the world hates Christianity so much. It hates genuine Christianity. Why, why would our community hate Christians who do nice things, who care for people, they're raising money to support the poor, they're teaching kids, they're doing everything. You, you know, when someone's in need, where do they go? They rock up and knock on the local church door or the rectory door, you know, because Alison has to answer it, <laughs> kind of thing. But, you know, any other time, all the church, like, why do they hate it so much? Well, I think it's because by nature we hate being told we're wrong, don't we? Who likes being told that they're wrong? Anyone? Put your hand up and we'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> um, how, I mean, how many times have you ever 
suggested to someone, even in the nicest possible way, that maybe they're a little bit off track or not going so well, or there's maybe something they could fix up, and yeah, they've just argued back at you and and said, no, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You're going to pull the log out of your own eye, whatever it is, you know, and or that you're the one that's the fault. They blame you or someone else instead of going, oh, wow, that's a really good point. How many husbands, and there's a few of them here, how many husbands react uh, when their wives suggest, however gently and correctly, that they might in fact be driving in the wrong direction or might even be hopelessly lost. Oh, don't I know where I'm going? <laughs> How many wives hate it when their husbands say, Honey, if you just if you just did it like this <laughs> You know, and and you go Wow, that's really good advice, my love. And I just, <laughs> so, I see that that's correct. No, 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 no. That's what we do. How, how much do you resent it when people try to point out your faults? And it doesn't matter how nicely you put it, does it? You know, the reaction is, oh, no, wrong. <clears throat> but the heart of the Christian message speaks to the world in which we live and says, you need to be reconciled to God. Why do you need to be reconciled with God? Because you're not right with God. And you cannot fix it yourself. Right? You may say you believe in God. You may say you love God, but you don't, in fact. It's a false God. Uh, You don't know him. Your sins aren't forgiven because Jesus is the only one that can do it. And... It attacks, so it attacks long-held and cherished beliefs and practices. It, it uh, upends nations and communities. It tears down man-made religion. It just says it's all a lie. It's all a sham. It attacks our pride in ourselves. That, you know, we think we're pretty alright. We're, in fact, I'm reasonably awesome. Uh, and, and God should consider himself lucky that I give him a, po- a, a passing thought, you know, every other day. Right, shouldn't he? Um, it attacks that. And therefore, Paul, as he's driven on, compelled with this glorious good news, he knows it's going to be hard. He knows he'll be sacrificing his ease and comfort and safety because he's going to be upsetting people. And inevitably, you read through the book of Acts, you read through 2 Corinthians, he describes it over again. He, that's what happens. Hardships, beatings, riots, arrests, shipwrecks, all of this as people react violently against his message. He's turning the world on its head and people really don't like it. Now, maybe you've experienced that yourself in some way. Um, you know, you've, you've, you've stuck your head up and mentioned that you go to church or you, you, know, you love Jesus or whatever it is and, you know, people haven't reacted very well. But be assured, hardship and suffering are not a sign that your ministry is not authentic, just the opposite. And so that's the first set of credentials. The second group really shouldn't surprise us, but I think there is a big surprise in it. It shouldn't surprise us to know that an authenticating mark of Christian ministry is the power of God and the Holy Spirit, right? 
You should see how to see God at work. You should be able to see the Holy Spirit doing his thing. You see that in verse 6. We commend ourselves in every way, verse 6, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God. You see, he lists the, the Holy Spirit and the power of God in there. Uh, of course you should see those things if the ministry is authentic. But what might surprise you uh, is what Paul says demonstrates the power of God and the Holy Spirit at work. I mean, if you were just to kind of think, oh, how would I how would I know if the Holy Spirit had done his thing today? What would have happened in church? Um, you know, you, you'd think maybe, if, you know, something impressive that, you know, there was some miracle or, you know, some sign or a vision or uh, someone being healed instantly. Uh, you know, that, that would prove the power of God had come, wouldn't it? The Holy Spirit's at work. And that's what many people are looking for and longing for. But what does Paul say demonstrates the power of God and the Holy Spirit at work? Well, it's the rest of the list there, isn't it? Purity, understanding, patience, kindness, sincere love, truthful speech. That's not exciting, is it? <laughs> it's a bit boring. You know? But that is what he says is the mark of the Holy Spirit at work. That's, and that's because Paul understands the Holy Spirit of God. Not that those other things can't happen or don't happen or won't happen ever. Of course they do. But they are not the authenticating mark of the Holy Spirit at work. They are not the demonstration of the Spirit's power. How do I know that? Well, for a few reasons. One, because of the list here. But Jesus himself said, many are going to come along and deceive you by casting out demons and doing miracles. And they'll front up to me at Judgment Day, this is in Matthew chapter 7, and they'll say, Lord, didn't I throw out demons in your name and heal people in your name? And he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. Do you believe the Lord Jesus? People can do miracles and have nothing to do with God. It is not a mark for or against someone being from God that they can do amazing things. Right? God does amazing things, that's for sure. But that doesn't mean everyone who does amazing things is from God. It's not the signs and the wonders. It's this list here. That truth and sincerity and love, that, that's the spirit at work. And that's because Paul describes the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians as the spirit of righteousness. That's his fundamental work. That is the Holy Spirit is the one who takes the, the message of the Christian faith, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, and he writes it on our heart so that we're brought into a right relationship with God. And then, and then he starts to produce works of righteousness within us. And so you see the Spirit of God at work in power when there's pure minds, when there's pure words, when there's pure actions, when there's pure motives, and there's patience and kindness and love. And Paul says, surely you've seen those things in me. I haven't been a deceiver. I haven't been violent. I haven't, um, you know, I'm, I'm changed man. I used to be a violent murderer, you might remember, but I, that's the power of God at work in me. That brings us to the third group of credentials. I'm going to get faster. In, uh, in the third group of credentials is that he speaks plainly the truth no matter what happens. And you see that in verses seven and eight. We commend ourselves in. Truthful speech and the power of God, 
with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report. And is he taking up real weapons? I mean, is he going out with the sword or the gun and saying, convert, convert? No, that's not the weapons. The thought is that in every single situation, no matter what the prevailing circumstances, whether people like it or not, Paul speaks plainly and clearly about Jesus Christ. He speaks about the weapons of righteousness. He clarifies it a couple of chapters over in chapter 10 uh, in verse 3 where he says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, the weapons we have have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and we demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. What are the weapons he uses to fight this war? The plain speaking of the truth. Forthright, intelligent, straightforward, refuting error, exposing lies, defending and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. He's not like the politician who waits to see what popular opinion is before deciding what policy to create or defend. Paul's an ambassador. Ambassadors don't change the message. That's the whole point of ambassadors. They stay online and they won't shift to suit whoever they're speaking with. But there's one final set of credentials of a true ambassador of God. And I don't know really how to express it, but I've got it this way. They have a gospel perspective on reality. They think about what's happening in a very different way. And I want to show you what I mean. Look at the the last seven pairs of opposites in verses 8 and 10 through 10. Paul sees the circumstances he's going through, the beatings, imprisonments, riots and so on, in an altogether different way, as if the glorious gospel he preaches is kind of like a pair of 3D glasses that you might get when you go to IMAX. You've been to IMAX or to, you know, um, the VMAX down at, you know, event cinemas or whatever. You get the glasses. It used to be the funny coloured ones. Uh, now it's the polarised this way and that way ones. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, all of a sudden, it's this weird blurry image suddenly becomes, whoo, 3D, it's like reality. You know, when you're seeing the Avatar guy drive off the cliff or whatever. Um, it's as if the, the gospel is like that to Paul. Because it enables him to see his circumstances in a completely different way. So, for instance, he's regarded as being an imposter in verse 8. But he knows he's genuine because he's teaching the genuine message. He's regarded as being unknown to God. But because of the gospel message that Jesus has died for his sins, he knows he's in fact known to God. He's a child of God. He's regarded as dying. Look at that loser. Yeah, but... Uh, in fact, because of the message of Jesus, he lives on. doesn't matter what happens to his body. He's beaten, but he's not killed. He's regarded as sorrowful, and I'm sure there were times he was down at the mouth and it was very difficult. But he's actually full of joy, he says, because uh, though he suffers to speak, he knows uh, the way that God's bringing so many people to life because of what he's doing. He's regarded as poor. Because he's turned aside from his career prospects. I mean, he was hot stuff in Jerusalem. He was like on track to become, you know, a head lawyer in one of the top six law firms in the city. Right? 
gave it all up to go and so tense so he could pay for his trips, so he could slum it around the world, proclaiming Jesus Christ. Regarded as poor yet rich, making many rich. Friends, those are the marks that mark out an authentic Christian worker and authentic Christian work. See, whether a church or a ministry is authentically Christian doesn't depend on the brand of coffee that they serve at morning tea. It doesn't depend on the quality of the biscuits. It doesn't depend on the brilliance or the showmanship of the speaker. It doesn't depend on the quality of the music or the style of the music. It doesn't depend on the entertainment factor. Whether we laugh or cry, it doesn't depend on that or the numbers in attendance. It's not defined by the architecture of the building that this ministry is held in. It depends only on whether it's the same ministry as the ministry of Paul's, whether it's shaped by the message of Jesus Christ. And so that's Paul's credentials. That's him laying it out. And so I think we've got to ask ourselves some questions. You know, do you believe Paul? Or maybe maybe you've gone a bit on Paul. Uh, I, I say that only because, you know, even lecturers at Moore College can go a bit that way, right? It's, um, oh, he's just a bit hardline, a bit tough. I, just, I, I read the good stuff. Yeah, just Jesus, I don't need that. No, they're the same. They've got the same message. Paul is Jesus' ambassador. Does his credentials stack up? But further, would you say that those things characterise our ministry here at Barney's? Because if they don't, then what are we doing? Would you say those things characterise your ministry to those around about you in whatever way you serve the gospel? But that brings us to the very famous appeal at the end in verses 13 to 14. And it's very graphic. And there's two parts to it. Two easy pictures to understand. One very positive, one very negative. First one, open wide your hearts. That's the positive, isn't it? Embrace us. Second one, do not be yoked with unbelievers. The first one, open wide. Uh, it's, it's the same word that's used for making an extension on your house uh, i don't know if you've ever made an extension on your house or your parents did or you've seen friends go through that that trauma in their life uh you know the whites adding on a second story uh or you know uh you know having an indoor toilet you know like we moved ours back at loftus uh, um, uh and going from septic to you know real thing uh uh or adding on a patio those kind of renovations Paul says in that way, extend your hearts to us, right? Um, Make room for us. But Paul's not simply interested in the Corinthians opening their hearts wide enough to receive Paul. It's not like they can just tack Paul on to the false teachers, you know, stick him in the granny flat out the back, so to speak. There's the negative as well. He says there needs to be some eviction as well as some welcoming. That is... There is no room for multiple occupancy when it comes to the ministry of Paul. And so says Paul, do not be yoked together 
with these unbelieving false teachers who are liars, who are leading you away from God. They have destroyed your relationship with God. They are white-ending everything. You must flee from it. It's not a matter of, oh, no, can't we just be nice? Can't we just be friends? No, flee. Do not be yoked. Run away. Depart from them. Have nothing to do with them. And he repeats quote after quote from the Old Testament on it. Now, that's been used then to, for, by Christians in all kinds of different ways. Um, but he's not really addressing Christians marrying non-Christians. Though, that is wrong and you should never do it. And never encourage your children or grandchildren or the youth group to do it. If they are dating a non-Christian and they are a Christian, you say, flee from that relationship. Do not encourage it. It is wrong. And this verse... Uh, I think it lends itself towards that, but you can go to other places in Scripture to to see that. It's not about business partnerships either with non-Christians, though I think those might well lead to strain and compromise, uh, especially if there's principles that are at stake, uh, and that can be difficult, but that's not about that. And it's not even really about faithful churches leaving denominations that go astray, because I think that misunderstands what a denomination is. A denomination is not a church in any sense of the Bible, right? What is a denomination? It is a religious real estate agent setting up temporary rain shelters around the landscape. That is all a denomination is. It is not the Christian church. It's a real estate agent. You can talk to me about that afterwards if you uh, want to disagree. No, this is an appeal to the local church to evict false teachers, to have nothing to do with the false teachers and their dodgy ideas of what genuine ministry is, and instead to embrace wholeheartedly the gospel message of Paul and the gospel ministry of Paul, to love what he loves and to cherish what he cherishes, and and to be of good cheer when you're acting in good faith as ambassadors, as God's ambassadors, because we really do have God's message for our world. We have great news We have a glorious treasure, even if it's within jars of clay that are a bit chipped and broken. Uh, The gospel message is wonderful. And so don't be sucked in by cheap junk which passes for spiritual wisdom. That's what happened to the Corinthians. They wanted more dramatic, more flashy, what might have falsely been seen as more spiritual. But what we need is not more whiz-bang. What we need is not ease. What we need is not success defined in the world's terms. What we need, in fact, what our world needs, is faithful men and women who will act as God's ambassadors, not shirking from the truth, but enduring hardship and suffering in patience and kindness that's brought about supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, which you'll need because it's going to be tough, fearlessly, joyfully, proclaiming the glorious and wonderful news, the gospel of reconciliation in Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Does our church stack up to that? Does your personal ministry stack up to that ideal? Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for these hard and challenging words uh, that we've read this morning. It's not, uh, it's not the, uh, the happiest passage in the Bible, but we thank you uh, for Paul's strength and wisdom that he was your ambassador 
And we pray for these authenticating marks to be present in our own ministry individually and as a church. Help us to uh, go through and endure the hardship and suffering that might come our way because we are yours and we have your message. We pray that your Holy Spirit might be seen at work in us in the purity of our hearts, in our kindness and patience and love. We pray that we might be fearless in proclaiming the truth straightforwardly, not uh, spinning it, not slipping on it, not uh, leaving aside things that we find uncomfortable. And we pray, please, that we'll have this gospel perspective on reality, that you are doing glorious things in and through us despite the difficulty We know our hope is sure that you know us and love us and are with us in all of it. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.